Hello and welcome to Be Positive Shoot Negative Podcast. I want to start off by thanking everyone for the recent support that I've been getting. It means the world to me. This week I had the pleasure of sitting down with the talented Chris Garner, aka Zone Focus. So without further ado, let's hop right in. So you shot pretty much everything from 35 to large format. Uh, what has been like the hardest thing for you to get into and what has been the most rewarding for you as an artist? Uh, so the hardest thing for me, uh, shooting the hardest, the hardest format that I've shot, of course, is, is large format. Large format is the hardest just because it's the, the most difficult to get right because there's a lot of, there's so many steps that you have to take before you actually make the photo. There's a lot of places where you can mess up and then cause you to like expose your film or something like that. And instead of just being able to wind to the next frame and do it again, you know, you have to do all of the steps again to try to prepare it for the next shot. So large format is definitely the most difficult of the formats. Um, But I think the most rewarding of the formats that I've shot is uh, six by six in medium format. And uh, I just, I had just bought a, a six by six camera. I had to send it back because it actually broke. But uh, yeah, it's so, like I I kind of like the first medium format camera I got was a uh, Mamiya C330, which was six by six. And I ended up selling it pretty quick because I couldn't do anything with it. I couldn't figure out how to use it. Like uh, I couldn't compose with it. I couldn't focus it. The you know it was my first camera with ground glass like look the ground glass everything was you know flipped yeah, on everything's flipped yeah yeah so that threw me off uh, yeah so it was just like a lot of out of focus photos a, a a really long time to make the photos and all of that so I ended up selling it pretty soon after I got it but uh, I always told myself I was like okay if somebody can you know if I can figure this one out like this is the one that I feel like is the most challenging out of all of the the formats. And I just recently picked up another uh, medium, like a, a six by six camera, a TLR. And I really, really like the photos that I made with it because it's, it's so much easier now because I was shooting the RZ67 for so long. So it's like, yeah, yeah, I can compose faster. I can focus faster. Like, Do you think that's more of like a weight thing for you? Because like the RZ is extremely heavy versus having like a TLR. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely the weight as well. Uh, but I think more so than the weight, it's just the fact that my brain understands the the connection to what I'm looking at. Like, I'm not trying to follow what I'm looking like. I'm not trying to follow what I'm looking at through the ground glass. I'm instinctually moving the camera to the correct position and not really just using my eyes to figure out where I need to go, you know? Yeah. So it's, uh, it's just easier to form it's like I can see something and I can frame it up the way that I see it without having to move around a lot and you know I'm rocking back and forth and I'm focusing in and out you know it's like I I know where I need to be to get it right so coming from off of you just mentioning that you buy and sell cameras uh, you mentioned that you own a lot of cameras and you might be opening up your own shop online do you have like a set date when this could happen? Um, and would this be a worldwide in the context of shipping? Because I know normally shipping from Japan, especially on eBay, it's 
pretty expensive to the United States. Yeah, yeah. So uh, my intention is to have it worldwide. That is definitely the intention. That's the goal. But uh, as of right now, because of the the you know the coronavirus situation, shipping from Japan to the U.S. isn't an option. I can't ship from here to there. You can ship from the U.S. to Japan, but you can't ship from Japan to the U.S. You can. Let me take that back. I'm gonna be more clear about it. So you can ship from Japan to the U.S., but you have to use carriers like UPS or FedEx or something like that. But uh, because and DHL, but because now the usual shipping option that you would have is through the Japan post office, and that's the the cheapest and easiest way to ship internationally. But because they're not doing it at the moment, they're not shipping to the U.S. at the moment. You got to use one of those three carriers to ship your packages. Now the the, I guess the predicament comes in because these three carriers know that they're the only three carriers that can ship internationally. So they jacked up all of their prices. Yeah. So, yeah. So like, for instance, like a one kilo box, you know, one kilogram box is like 70 plus dollars to send to the U S if you send it, you know, airmail with tracking or something like that. And it just gets higher and higher and higher. So that's ridiculous. And I'm sure nobody would want to pay that. And I don't want to tell nobody they got to pay that much. But uh, there are a lot of other countries in the world that are open now. So uh, what I was planning on doing is, because I, I don't want to open the store and put things on the internet and then have it so like some people aren't available to get it, you know? Yeah. If I put it on the internet, I want to make it available to everybody who wants to, you know, get their hands on it. So what I'm probably going to end up doing is doing it on Instagram, which that's how I was selling cameras beforehand anyway, was uh, I would just post it on my Instagram story and then uh, make like a little, you know, something on my page to show that the cameras that I have for sale. So I'm probably going to do something like that and just say the countries that are available and, uh, you know, kind of make it open to those people. Yeah. So do you, uh, what is, what cameras do you currently have that you are planning on transitioning to selling uh i just sold an a1 a canon a1 uh i have a a1 program a black a1 program uh and uh i have two 50 millimeter uh f1.4 ssc the canon fd lenses i got a, i got a pair of those and uh like i said i got the the a1 program uh, the A1 program needs to get some work done to it because uh, the the lens doesn't stop down when you take a picture. So I'm probably not going to sell that one right off. Uh, I got a Nikon FE2 with the 514. Uh, that's working. Uh, a T90, a Canon T90. It's like a, one of the plastic body Canons. Um, I have a handful of Olympus stylus zooms. Uh, let's see what else is over there. I got about three of those. One of them is bagged. Like one of them is still like pretty much brand new. It's got the remote control, the wristband, the instruction manual, all of that. Um, let's see. Uh, I got a Mamiya 645 Super 
with the automatic winder and the meter prism on it. I'm going to sell that. Uh, a couple of Polaroid cameras. Oh, and a Mamiya 645S, a GS645S, the, the rangefinder. Um, 645 one. But no, I don't really shoot any of them. I haven't shot, well, I've shot the SLRs as much as to test it just to make sure it was working, but I don't really shoot the SLRs. Uh, I shot the Mamiya 645 a little, but I don't really shoot it. I shot the GS 645 a little, but I don't really shoot it. Like, I've kind of figured out the cameras that I like and enjoy to use. So it's, I don't really like to switch cameras a lot. Like at, at one point I felt like I did, I, I thought I did. And I like would switch cameras a lot, but then it's like after using a whole bunch of cameras, it's like, okay, well, I really, really like this camera. So I'm just going to continue to use this one. Yeah. And, and that's kind of how it's been. So, but yeah, so that's kind of the lineup that I have of things that are going to be going up on probably Instagram sometimes so within the next month or so. And then, uh, uh, yeah. With all these cameras that you have shot, um, how did you get into analog photog uh, photography? Uh, what is your story? Uh, let's see, I got into analog photography in 2017, like right at the beginning of 2017. Um, yeah, I guess that's that's when I like seriously got into it. I had bought a, a Fuji Film X Pro Two in 2016, like the the end of or no in 2017 as well. They both started at the same time, so I got an X Pro Two, and then I was like, man, I, I kind of like X Pro Two. Somebody was like, oh, it looks like a film camera. And I was like, okay, but anyway, I had a friend of mine uh, at the time I was living in Thailand. So I had a friend of mine who, uh, who I knew from down there, who was already shooting film. He had like a Nikon FM2 something, something like that, an SLR. And I was walking around. We did like a photo walk one day, and I had my X Pro Two, and he had the, his film camera. I was like, oh man, that's cool. You know, could I try it out? Da da da. And he basically he just let me borrow his camera and shoot his camera. And I just remember the first time I walked around with it. And I was like, man, I really like this because I wasn't concerned about looking at the pictures. Like I was just, I was just the walking shooting. around. Yeah, I was just walking around looking and shooting. And I was like, man, that's, you know, it was just a nice feeling to not have to like play with a whole bunch of settings and, you know, I'm doing color profiles and I'm raw and JPEG, and, you know, all of that type of stuff. It's like, I didn't have to worry about that. I wasn't taking like a hundred photos of one thing that weren't like the hundred photos weren't good at all. Like I was really thinking about what I was going to shoot. So I did that. And uh, that's probably the bug that got me into analog photography. I definitely give him the credit for, uh, you know, putting that bug in me and kind of getting me going on my analog journey. So shout out to Ben. I don't know if he's out there listening, but shout out to Ben for getting me into analog photography. And then uh, like from there, uh, I bought my first film camera, which was a a Canon, uh, which is it? Is it a Canon QL17? And uh, it was cool because I, 
you know, in 2017, it was before it hadn't the film train no, hadn't really gotten going. That's around when I started was 2017. So like I had a I know exactly what you're talking about. Like back then everything was like half of what it's going for now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like the yeah, the general pricing of everything was still kind of fairly low. So I I got a like a QL seventeen for like I think about a hundred bucks or something like that, you know. And I shot that and I didn't like it. Um that was my first rangefinder camera, like proper rangefinder camera. So I didn't really like it that much uh, because I wanted to zone focus with it, but there's no there's no scale, there's no distance scale on the QL17. So, or it is, but it's under the bottom of the lens, which is like counterproductive. Like you got to yeah. flip the camera over to see what your distance is. So I, I didn't really like that. And the other thing that killed me about it, I don't think I ever heard anybody talk about it before, but the shutter button is really long on the QL17. And yeah. it's, uh, it's fairly stiff. So it's like when you try to push that button down, at least for me, I, all of my photos would be angled pretty much because the, the focus throw, I mean, not the focus throw, but the shutter throw was so long to get it all the way down to when it takes a photo. So yeah, it was quirky. I didn't really like it that much. So I sold it at 40 millimeters, just drove me crazy. Uh, and then I ended up getting a Canon P. I love the Canon P. I take I took some of my like most favorite photos with the Canon P and the uh, 50 millimeter uh, Russian lens joint. One of the Russian lenses, cold lens. I the Jupiter Jupiter three I think it was. But I'm trying to look at it. I got it somewhere over there. But yeah, anyway, so I got that, and then. Uh, after that, I ended up selling my film, I mean, my digital camera. I sold my, oh no, rewind. So I got that. And then I was like, as soon as that happened, I'm like, oh, I'm going to get in the medium format. Like, what's the next step? Because I think I, I had seen like George or something like that, negative feedback. Yeah. And because, uh, you know, like they were just kind of, he was just start, starting to get going about that time. And uh, I was like, hmm, medium format, that looks interesting and of course like matt day saw like his videos and stuff like that and uh so i'm like oh no you know who it was it was um uh eduardo you know eduardo you ever seen ed's videos eduardo eduardo uh he's like uh he's from chile but he, he ended up moving around the world he's living like germany and a whole bunch of other places he lives in new york now but anyway he had made this video where he shot 30 rolls in 30 days on a Mamiya C330 and made a zine out of it. And so every day he would get out and shoot one roll of film. And uh, that's what put me onto the Mamiya C330. Cause I was like, man, the photos that that thing makes is crazy, which it does. The lenses on the, the Mamiya C lenses that they use for the C330 are the top of the line. They're, I think Mamiya makes the best medium format glass like they're right up there with zeiss uh, yeah yeah so i i love mamiya's medium format glass but anyway bought the c330 hated it uh so it wasn't as good as so that's a little message to everybody out there who might be listening just because you see a, see a camera on youtube and you see somebody using the camera and they make good photos with it doesn't mean when you get it you're gonna make good photos with it because my 
<laughs> photos was garbage. <laughs> I think, and I didn't even use it. I think I shot maybe like three rolls with it because I just didn't like it. Uh, and uh, then I, I got a, a, a Yashica Matte 124G, which I got for like $120. It was like brand new. It just it, the meter was broke and it didn't have any scratches or anything, right? I got it fixed with a new meter and everything cost less than $200. And the thing was like brand new and I sold it because I didn't know how to use it still to this day. Like I didn't know, well, not to this day, but you know, when I had it, I didn't know how to use it. So I think I shot maybe two or three rows with it. Sold both of them and uh, let's see, sold my, both of those and I ended up getting the Besa R2M. I caught it on an eBay, uh, an eBay auction. And uh, so I was really happy about that because it was the uh, the 250th anniversary. It was like the special edition, limited edition Besa. And uh, basically they had only, they only made like 800 black versions of this camera and like 500 silver versions of it. And I caught one on eBay with the lens that I still have for like $700. Yeah. And they're going for like the body and lens combination. I was going for like more than like two racks, like around, yeah, like 2000 US now. Uh, you've been shooting no. a lot of uh, slide film recently. And you did mm -hmm. mention in a video that you think it's uh, the shit. Uh, what is it about slide film that you've been loving so much recently? shit <laughs> like slide film is hard uh it's uh it's it's unique like there's something really unique about slide film uh it is a little it's a little you know it's more difficult it's not as forgiving to make photos with but i think the reward when you actually make good exposures with slide film is you know you you can't beat it um the contrast, the colors, the saturation, the sharpness, like all of those aspects of it, like the colors that, that come out of slide film, I don't know, it's like, especially like, like, I like Velvia, what, yeah? Uh, like lifelike, I, like, I've been shooting a lot of Velvia 50 and it's, I know mm. exactly, it's, it's something, it's hard, but it's like the most lifelike colors I feel. Yeah, they're just really, they're really lifelike. Uh, I, that's a good way of putting it. And this, you know, like the, the colors are just really nice. And I, I really, I, firstly, I enjoy the shadows in slide film. I like the shadows, like how dark the shadows get. Um, even though you might lose detail in them, I kind of like that strong contrast. Um, I don't like it in color negative film because the shadows don't come out black like how they do in uh, in slide film. They, you know, they just kind of, they don't look good in uh, color film, I think, like color negative. But I think slide film, if you if you get the exposure right and you got your highlights perfect and then the shadows just kind of fall wherever they lay, I think that's really, really nice. And uh, I mean, on top of that, it's a lot of, you know, uh, amazing photographers of the past all use slide film even street photographers you know they would use slide film to shoot with and uh, 
you know, like Ectochrome, I mean, not Ectochrome, but Kodachrome or whatever back in the day. Um, it's this one dude, his name is, uh, what's his name? Not Gordon Parks. Hold on, I gotta look at the name. I can't see it from here, I get my glasses on. Oh, Michael Ruse, yeah. You ever heard of Michael Ruse before? Uh, no, I have not. Michael. So Michael Ruse is a sports photographer. Probably you've seen his work. I'm probably without a doubt. You ever seen the Michael Jordan jump man where he's yeah. like, and he's got a white shirt on and like black shorts and it's yeah. the jump man picture that became the logo. That's mm -hmm. Michael Ruse. Michael Ruse took that picture. Oh, nice. So yeah. And he shot like all slide film, probably some of the most iconic sports photos of like the eighties and 90s all came from Michael Ruse. And uh, his slide film work is amazing. Like it's ridiculous. It looks like he has some pictures from like, um, it, I think it was like a, a, like the major, the MLB like playoff games or something like that from like the early 90s, something like that. And I'm talking about these pictures look like they could be like screenshots of a video game. It's, I don't know it I don't know what it is about it, but it's like the colors and the way that he shoots, I don't know, it's just really crazy. But um and if you had sports basketball cards or, or like old baseball cards and stuff like that, Michael Ruse did a lot of those photos as well. So you process your own black and white film and C forty one. Have you ever thought about doing E6? Possibly. Uh yeah, 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 definitely. I've thought I've thought about E6. I've tried color negative before, um, but the thing about here in Japan is uh, it's difficult to get chemicals. Um, so Japan is really like it's just super difficult to get materials here to do certain types of film processing. Uh, you can get big batches of chemicals, like if you're a lab, you can get you know. Uh, five liters or something of chemicals so you can put it in your machine, but you can't buy small quantities of like C41 chemicals or E6 chemicals just for personal use. Like that's not a, not really a thing. Uh, and shipping it here is really difficult as well. So I've been doing only black and white here because black and white chemicals are still fairly easy to get your hands on here. So uh, I would like to do C41. But uh, I think even if I did right now, I don't really have the means to do C41 because I don't have anything to control uh, the temperatures with because the temperatures have to be so on point. Yeah. And I don't really want colors to shift and all of that. So uh, black and white processing is forgiving enough that I can just, you know, like I, I shoot mostly HP5 and I usually push it uh, two stops to 1600. And I know that process like the back of my hand with the chemicals that I use. So I don't have to like look up anything to get anything correct. You know, I, I just know what to do. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's usually either that or I'll shoot like Acros 100 and I'll push that to 400 because I like uh, Acros 100 actually is my favorite black and white film. Uh, I've never shot it. It's just like it's the expensive aspect for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like $12 a roll. And I'm like, 
right yeah the new the new acros is really expensive uh i still got like a, a, a like i had bought up a whole bunch of the original before um because when it, i got here is it like, in 120 or 35 both well if you ever yeah. want to sell one hit oh, me I'm up. definitely not <laughs> like because it's, it's it's you can't get it anymore it's, it's yeah it's, it's hard to find it's gone uh and now people are starting to because it's going people are starting to jack up the prices on the original acros as well yeah but like when so like for example when i first got here uh to japan it was like right when they had announced that they were going to discontinue acros so i was going to camera stores and they had like these big huge piles of the three boxes of 35 acros 100 original that they had like half you know cut the price in half and they were just like getting rid of it because it was starting to expire right yeah so i used to just go in stores and if they had like three boxes of it left or four boxes i would just buy up all of it at once and just take it and uh and there's a a little camera store like in the city that i live in and this guy has a uh, like a little stockpile of the 120 acros 100 and I'll go in there every once in a while and just buy a box off of him until it's probably going to be gone. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so that's that's kind of how I've been getting around that. Uh, so, yeah, so back to like chemicals, you can't like get like Cine Steel stuff because that's like what I use. I use like their the C41 and then their uh, Dynamic Chrome E6 stuff. Yeah, I would love to try it, uh, but it's no nobody sells it here it's not i i haven't i've never seen it on the market here in japan like ever uh you did a video like on your journey to japan i know you've touched on it that you um were in thailand mm -hmm. uh, you said you left the states in 2005 uh and then you moved to japan recently uh for people who don't have the pleasure of watching your channel uh, can you tell us your story? Uh, yeah, so I didn't move in 2005, it was 2015. I think I said it wrong in the video. Oh, okay, okay. Um, yeah, it was, I moved in 2015. And uh, uh, let's see, I don't know, I'm gonna kind of keep it concise. You feel me? I'm gonna crush it down a little bit. <laughs> yeah, so I, I left the US in 2015 and moved to Thailand. I was a volunteer uh, with the Peace Corps, which is a, like a, uh, how do you explain it? It's not really, it's not a, it's government funded, but it's not like a direct entity of the government. Like it's not run by any government offices or anything like that. Like it's independently run, but it's just government funded. And uh, basically we, <clears throat> like Peace Corps volunteers go to countries that ask for volunteers to come and to do different types of jobs inside of the country. So you are basically a partner with the government of the country that you go to. So I was a volunteer and I ended up going to Thailand uh, to help teach English because I was teaching before I had left uh, the US and uh, was there for about two years. And then I left, went back home for uh, a year or no, I, I went back home for a month and then I ended up moving back to Thailand again because I just really liked it. So uh, I got a regular job and I ended up, you know, just working my regular job in, in Thailand and stayed there for another two years. So that was like 
from 2015 up to 2019. And I moved from 2019, I moved uh, from Thailand to Japan, like directly from there to here. And uh, and like I said, and I've been here in Japan since 2019 up until now. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's been a cool ride, man. It's been a cool ride. Uh, I really enjoy, I really enjoy Thailand. Thailand is dope. If you, you know, if you, if you get the chance to go out there, if anybody gets the chance to go out there, it's worth every penny of it. The most expensive thing to do in Thailand is to buy your plane ticket to get there. Once you get there, it's very affordable to travel around and to eat until you can't eat anymore and, you know, enjoy the sun, enjoy the heat. It's hot every day. Uh, yeah, so I definitely recommend Thailand. And Japan is really nice too, especially to travel in Japan. Traveling in Japan is really fun. Uh, so, you know, even coming here, my only recommendation if you did come to Japan would be don't just go to Tokyo. Like, get out of Tokyo. Tokyo is not really Japan. Like, same if you go to Thailand. Like, don't just go to Bangkok. Bangkok isn't really Thailand. Like, get outside of the major cities. Go to small areas. Go to, you know, places that not a lot of foreigners go to and stuff like that. Go to those type of places because those type of places where you're going to see real people and, uh, you know, you get to interact with, with real people instead of just city people who see foreigners all the time, you know? So, yeah. So that's my recommendation for sure. Super you, you recently made a video titled, um, I make bad photos as an mm -hmm. artist. How do you overcome the feeling of your artwork? Maybe not being good enough, uh, to like post or even not just good enough to your standards. Um, we have all been there. I've personally been there. And not only with like my art that I've been producing with uh, my film, um, it's also could be with like the podcast that I have, you know, mm -hmm. um, how do you overcome that as an artist, that feeling? You just got to take it, take it on the chin, keep it moving. Like, uh, I mean, it, it is what it is. You, we're not perfect. Nobody's perfect. Like we're not going to produce images that are, you know, we're not we're not always going to produce art that's like uh, the best every single time we decide to pick up a camera, every time we turn on the mic or every time we pick up a pencil to draw, whatever, play the guitar, whatever the case may be. Sometimes you, you know, you do things and it's just not, uh, you know, it's just not going to be good. But the thing is, is that you got to take that and, and you got to learn from it. If you're learning from it, then, you know, those mistakes are OK. Uh, you got to look at it like if you're a baby, especially I, I feel like a lot of us are younger photographers and just kind of, you know, we haven't put in the amount of clicks yet. We ain't shot the shutter enough to to get to that level where you have a, a greater understanding of what's happening. So, you know, in that time where you're getting up to that understanding, you have to understand that, you know, it's just going to happen. It's bound to happen and it's necessary. It has to happen. Growing pains are real babies fall every time they try to get up to walk but they don't just lay on the ground and roll around and kick and scream they get back up and they try to do it again so that's the same thing and then one day 
you get like a Usain Bolt and running faster than everybody. He couldn't run or walk at one point in life. You feel me? Like, yeah. <laughs> Rug could not, he, he didn't come out the womb sprinting, you know, 10 second, 100 meters, you know, eight second, 100 meters. He didn't do that. You know, it took him a long time to get to that level. So it's the same thing when we get to photography or art or whatever we produce or whatever we do. It's just, you got to take that time, man. It's like, you just got to put in the work and not beat yourself up about it. Like, it's no reason to get down on yourself or it's no reason to, you know, crucify yourself just because what you do isn't up to your standards. It's good to have standards. It's good to have a a goal, a vision of where you want to be. But just because at this moment you're not at that yet doesn't mean that you should stomp on your own feet, uh, you know, just because. So, I, I mean, that's uh, that's how I feel about it. The the making bad photos thing is just, I, that was more of a message to myself because I've done that before. I've done, like, I've been the person to be my worst critic, my own worst critic. And uh, it got to a point where I realized where it's like, okay, this isn't productive in any way. Like when I'm my own worst critic, I'm my own worst enemy. You know, I'm yeah. the one that can, I'm the, I'm the only one that can stop what I'm doing. And it's all mentally, you know, it's all through what I'm thinking. So if, you know, if I just understand that it's part of the process and just stay true to the process, then yeah, then that type of stuff will, it'll come, but you know. What was the quote that you, uh, you said a really nice quote. Um, I can't remember it off the top of my head, but it really resonated Mm -hmm. with, uh, do you have that quote by chance? Was it the, in the video? Yeah, it was the one that you uh, said in the video. Yeah, it was a quote, a quote by uh, Henri Cartier-Bresson, and he said something like, uh, I forget how many photos, it's like 10,000 or something like that. But it was basically like the first 10,000 photos you make are going to be, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm, I'm making yeah. my own quote now, because I didn't say, I, I'm not reading it. So he, basically like the first 10,000 photos you make are going to be garbage, you know, like they're just going to be garbage. Don't worry about it, because you have to put in that work. And I think uh, what I'm liking it, what, what what comes to mind is that that's kind of uh, any type of technical job. Like if you have a, if you're an electrician, if you're a plumber, if you're an architect, you have to put in a certain amount of hours before you can get the professional tag on your name. You know, you can't be a master plumber unless you do, you know, uh, 10,000 hours. You of- put in the work. Right, and a certain amount of hours doing the job, or a master electrician, or whatever the case may be. I'm sure it's not ten thousand. That sounds like a lot of hours. But, how, but however how many? many hours it is, I forget what the master tag is. How many hours it takes to be a master at a technical? Uh, well, position. like ten thousand hours would be like four hundred and fifteen days of. Okay, well then, they, yeah, that might be right. That's like nonstop continuous work, though, of nonstop working. Uh, so you have your day job. Um, yeah. how do you balance your, your day job, your, the YouTube channel and taking photos and de- developing and processing these photos in a typical week? Uh, man, that's, that's probably the hardest thing to be honest. Uh, cause it, I don't, I, I just kind of do it when I can. Um, uh, it's, I don't I don't really have a great plan 
or schedule to do those types of things. Like I do it when I can and that's kind of how it works. So it's like for the YouTube videos thing, I usually only film on the weekends because I work all day and I don't have any lights. So I use natural light in all of my videos. So if I'm, the only time I have to really record is on the weekend days. And if I go out and I do something else, then I don't have the chance to record. So that's why on my channel, it'll be times where it's like, like, okay, like the last month, like the month of October, I, I released a video every week of October. But that's because at the beginning of the month, at the beginning of October, like the end of September, I had shot all of those videos and edited all of them. So I had finished all four or five videos that I was going to release and I just lined them up to release. But uh, I haven't gotten a chance to do that again. So I don't like right now, it's been maybe like two weeks since I put up a video, but that's just because I haven't had the chance to finish any more videos. And I kind of want to get on the, I kind of want to bulk create videos and then put them out, you know, just to drop them out. Yeah. Cause I don't have the time to record videos every week and try to do everything within a week. Like it's just not feasible for, for my life right now. So, uh, and yeah, and I think that kind of goes back into what we just talked about, about the, uh, you know, about not getting down on yourself about the work that you're creating. Uh, because, you know, some people really beat themselves up if they don't release a video weekly or if they don't release a video constantly, you know. But I don't know. In my situation, I just kind of understand that. I mean, it could be feasible. I'm not going to sit here and just be like, oh, I can't do it. I could yeah. do it. But at the same time, it's like, that's not really what I want to do. You know, like, I don't really want to do that right now uh, because it would be added stress for no reason. Like, I would be putting a lot more stress on myself just for no reason. And I don't want to just force myself to make videos just because I'm trying to please some imaginary people on the Internet. You know, like, you know, it's, it's no reason to add stress on my life to you know, for something like that. And half the people who are, you know, half the people who we interact with on the internet, I mean, like I've been able to, you know, talk to you directly and uh, like I've talked to a, a lot of the people who you've interviewed uh, before, you know, I've talked to them before, but the majority of people who are out there and they're following you on Instagram or or YouTube or something like that, if you didn't post anything for three weeks, nobody would be like, oh, where are they at? Yeah. You know, like nobody's going to be like looking to figure out where you went, you know? So it's like, why add stress on your life to be like, you know, continuously, I have to make a video every week to please these people who, who do enjoy the videos, but couldn't who could probably care less if there was a video, if there wasn't a video that week, you know, you might get your few that are really like, yeah, we want to see it. But the majority of people will watch it if it's there. And if it's not, they won't. Mm -hmm. uh, you recently entered the world of large format. It's the expensive beast is what I, I, I like to call it. Can you give some helpful tips to people like me who 
are looking into venturing into this expensive world of large format. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny. Just like is is a lot of the questions that you asked today. I'm actually making videos about like. So this is another one that I'm actually. It's going to be a video coming out that I've already shot. I'm in the process of editing, talking about things to do uh, to help people uh, save money getting into large format. Um, but I'll give you, okay, like one, one thing uh, to save money to kind of be efficient shooting large format or getting into large format is uh, you could get a old, a older camera and you don't have to get a brand new camera. Like you can get like a crown graphic or something like that. Crown graphic shoots four by five. Because the thing is, is that when you get up to four by five, the lenses are what you're really looking for. And uh, the thing is, is that you can get really good lenses for not a lot of money, like uh, Fujinon lenses and um, like Nikon lenses and stuff like that. You can get those for a pretty good price. So you you know you get you a nice lens and I think starting off like you don't need a lot of movements and stuff like that like I like I did the videos with the Intrepid and uh, I seldom really use movements like <laughs> for example your camera is never gonna look like how it looks on ads like when you see four by fives on ads and they're like extended and they're bent and you know yeah. and the front is tilted you're never gonna take a photo and the camera's gonna look like that like that's not how it works like movements are subtle they're really small movements so you don't need a camera unless you're doing some type of specific photography that's going to be uh making all of those type of movements you don't really need all of that so i would say you know just get a, a solid camera that you can put lens boards in and you can change the lenses on and yeah i think the majority of people either shoot people or like landscapes architecture landscape stuff like that so yeah you don't really need a lot of stuff you just need something if you're shooting landscape that'll straighten your lines out uh get the perspective right and, and that's about it like so yeah crown graphic or like a, a vista a vista vista four by five those things are pretty cool and those are all like old field cameras that like fold into like little boxes yeah yeah. Are so you? Are is that what you're looking into getting, or are you gonna get the Intrepid? Uh, I'm probably leaning towards the Intrepid, uh, just because I, I do like the Wista. The Wista 45D is really nice, uh, but for me, in my situation, being mobile and being and having something light is the biggest thing for me because I'm, uh, because I travel. You know, like I'm not living, if I was living at home in the U.S., I would probably get something heavier because I have a little more control of what I'm doing, right? But being outside of the U.S. and not being in somewhere the stable, you know, like not being in one place for an extended period of time kind of deters me from getting like heavy cameras. So like the RZ has taken that heavy place. <laughs> so yeah it's not i don't i don't have any any more space for heavy cameras so that's why i want to you know like i was talking about earlier sell all these other cameras because it's just taking up space right now so yeah, yeah. that's kind of like where i'm leaning i'm 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 gonna wait until after december 
to see how much money I'm able to save up, but it's yeah. probably going to be an intrepid um, okay. and then get all the new backs and stuff that it has. So I don't have to worry about any of that. I want to thank you for coming on. I know the time zone was kind of difficult and I know you're a busy person and I really appreciate you coming on. I really, I really appreciate you for, for, you know, inviting me onto your show. Uh, you know, I wish you all the best moving forward. You've already had some some major artists. I saw you, you know, Madison and uh, Kyle and uh, Vince, you know, a lot of those are some really great people, uh, people who I've interacted with personally as well. Uh, and, uh, you know, just wish you all the best as you keep going forward. And you said you're a student, right? You, yeah, you I'm, still, a, I'm, still, I'm still in school. Have, I'm doing like 20 units this semester, so got a lot on my plate. Okay. Yeah, man. So, I mean, you know, just make sure you keep it balanced and keep your priorities right. You know, you're already doing good with the school, with the school part. So, yeah, just, you know, wish you all the best. You'll be able to, like I said, you'll start upgrading as you start to keep going doing this. And, uh, you know, I think I think you're going to do real well. I want to thank you, Chris, for coming on to the show and working with the 16 hour time difference. You were definitely one of my favorite people I've ever had the pleasure to speak with. Stay tuned for next episode and stay safe out there, guys.